Today on the show, I talk to Benefactor's Gethin Naden about putting the employee at the centre of the organisation, whether those 300,000 wellbeing apps on the App Store really work, and ESG goals. I'm John Kennard, editor of Unleash, and this is UnleashCast. Let's dive in. Let's talk about the employee first, what seems to be more and more the keystone of every business, if it wasn't already. But um, you came to me with an idea that the, or or, or a statement of intent, really, that the employee is the primary stakeholder, the new primary stakeholder in an organisation. Can you sort of explain a bit about what you mean there? Yeah, so it it was... It was something I started thinking about just before the pandemic was, you know, there seemed to be this common trait I was seeing with successful organizations where they were almost unreservedly putting the employee first. So I was looking at some you know, big case studies of big organizations, you know, mostly US centric or global, who were really de- doubling down on the idea that if we really support our people and give them everything they need, they will deliver the best products for us they'll deliver the best customer service they'll innovate more they'll collaborate more and that seems to be from the research i was doing a common feature of a successful organization was one that put the employee at the center and i started to do some separate research probably at the start to mid 2020 looking at what do most people's strategies look like and i'm in a, a pretty advantageous position where Lots of the customers that I work with, very large enterprise global customers, send me their people strategies for me to look over and just feed back. And so I was trying to look at kind of what are the common themes and why isn't everyone as successful as some of these big case study businesses were, organizations were. Um, and it almost felt to me that I looked at so many people strategy documents, they all look very similar to the extent that it almost felt like one day at a conference many years ago somebody created a template for the people strategy and from that point on everyone had used it Um, but they were very much centered on how do we use people to get what the business wants so it's very much putting the organization's needs at the middle and then trying to make sure that the employees kind of fall into that and achieve things so you know we were effectively looking at how do we squeeze people as much as possible to get whatever we need to get out of them to be successful Um, and I think that's how most businesses operated you know, a long time ago. For hundreds of years, it's been you go to work, you get paid, that's the end of the relationship, that's the end of the transaction. Um, but that was changing quite a lot on the run-up to the pandemic and buoyed by the pandemic, that whole situation has changed where actually the employee is much more influential in that relationship than they probably ever have been. And so when I started to look at those people's strategies, I started to basically devise my own model of employee experience, which was if you put the employee at the center and you support them in the way that they need, they will create good things. And employees are appreciating assets. So I always felt like if you gave them the benefits that would support them through their lives, if you helped them when they went through a mental health crisis or a debt crisis, if you were really kind of um, accommodating of the challenges they would face in life, they would repay you back with the loyalty that you needed delivering better customer service and you know there's this old great quote which is nobody comes up with a great idea when they're being chased by a lion and so I think if we could help employees remove some of their stresses in life or help them deal with them better would we actually have a better result and we've started to see some really good examples of companies understanding this now and the one that springs to mind is Lidl in the UK 
big supermarket, one of the big discount supermarkets, but also one of the fastest growing, is now the highest paying supermarket. So they've kind of realized that actually, if we start to do all the right thing by people, we will start to get the best people in the job and they'll deliver the best customer service and, and that will have an impact on a business. Uh, if you look at some of the research that came out of people like Gallup and McKinsey over the last couple of months, that, that starts to ratify that. So for the first time since they've been measuring it, Gallup have now found that most people say, and, and when I say most people, it's like 95% of people, that the employee is the most important stakeholder. No longer customers, no longer shareholders, no longer investors, but employees. And that's a big, big shift, I think, a, bit, a generational shift in how businesses operate and what a business is there for. And I think that's been pretty significant to see that happen. And, and clearly the pandemic had a big impact on that. Your first comment was that this is mostly seen in larger businesses about um, employees becoming the primary stakeholder. Do you see this filtering down to smaller organizations? Is it more difficult for them to apply these um, these philosophies because perhaps they haven't got the uh, time or the money for research? Or what do you think? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I get asked this quite a lot. I think the employee experience, I would say, is easier to deliver when you've got less people. And I think anyone who's managed to start up, you know, when I joined Benefex as part of the senior leadership team 10 years ago, we were kind of 25 people it's much, much easier to run a culture and to manage the employee experience when you're under 100 people. It becomes far more difficult when you're employing tens of thousands of people because most people's experience working for you is just their experience of working in that team or that department with one manager. And I think when you look at designing employee experiences at work, when you look at designing well-being experiences, you almost try to take money out of the equation because if you think back to the tribe and fire of what it's like to be human and what we all want from our lives and and this is pretty much the theme of, of my first book was really dedicated to the idea that you don't have to be a google and a linkedin and apple who are, can be really experimental and spend a lot of money anyone who manages an sme can kind of communicate more transparently can listen to their employees more and it's obviously much easier to do that when you can get all your employees in one room at one time than it is to send a survey out to 10,000 people. Obviously a crucial part of putting the employee at the center has come through well-being as well. Yeah. There's some fairly obvious and maybe we don't even need to mention the reasons why well-being has come to the fore over the last couple of years, but we're seeing an interesting development in well-being technology. It's it's become less of a an ephemeral uh less tangible it's become more tangible sorry as as yeah. technology has come to the fore and the way that links in with well-being you know before it was something that was definitely a nice to have and you know that it's the right thing to do but you're not quite sure how to maybe implement it and that sort of thing so talk talk a bit about kind of the developments there yeah so it's interesting you know the well-being market is getting heavy investment especially in the us you know the number of tech startups that are related to well-being is now huge if you look across the um the app stores the kind of google play stores the apple app stores you probably have somewhere in the region of something ridiculous like three hundred thousand well-being apps that are available to download so a significant number and that's obviously risen a lot since the pandemic began and i think that's probably pretty much a good signal of how actually well-being has been pretty commodified We've almost convinced ourselves in our lives that that stress is normal and, you know, struggling with our mental health is normal. And, 
you, we can buy our way out of that. So as consumers, it's um, I'm going on holiday for two weeks and spending all that money on an exotic holiday to decompress and de-stress from the fact that my job is really busy and is burning me out. And so the whole well-being market, I think, started to pitch itself as, oh, you're struggling or your employees are struggling, buy this thing and I'll solve that problem for you. And I think what's starting to happen now is this next evolution of well-being and how we view well-being tools is, is that really true? And I think some really good examples, I think, where I've seen this is, you know, in 2021, employers like Nike and um, LinkedIn and Bumble, they all gave their employees periods of time away from work paid to deal with well-being. Now, in most of those examples, what happened is they did an employee survey and employees said, look, we we're really burnt out. And they're like, okay, we've got to do something about that. So I'll give you time off. But they didn't look at why employees were burnt out. They didn't look at what structurally in the organization was causing burnout. They just looked at, okay, people are stressed. We need to get them to de-stress. But the reality is, I think, in my opinion, those employees are going to go back to the very same workplace that caused burnout, having had a nice rest. And I'm sure there's lots of benefits to taking a week off paid. But they're just going to burn out again because we're not solving the problems. And that's pretty indicative of well-being. I think well-being as an industry has focused very much on crisis and point of crisis, which is, you know, John, you're struggling. How do I solve you from struggling? How do I stop you from struggling with the thing you're struggling at the moment without really looking at how do we even get you to stop getting to that point? So how do we go kind of further back to find out, you know, why is your mental health poor? You know, why aren't you sleeping very well? What is causing you to leave? a sedentary lifestyle that might be causing kind of physical well-being issues. And I think we are now at this point where the pandemic forced well-being adoption en masse. And I think we probably accelerated this industry by almost 10 years just because through the pandemic. And now I feel like employers are at this point where they're pausing and saying, we can't just keep buying things. We can't end up with a collection of stuff. We can't just have 10 different apps that will all look at financial well-being and mental well-being and physical well-being i can't just buy a collection of things i need to be a bit smarter about what am i offering and how is that solving problems and how does that correlate to the other things employers do that impact well-being such as you know do my people have an opportunity to voice their opinion do i ask them their opinion do i listen to what they've got to say do i train my managers do managers understand that well-being and the welfare of a team is part of their success as an individual right the way through to um, you know, how are we encouraging kind of good working patterns and a good work-life balance? So there's a lot of kind of HR and business policy stuff and company policy stuff here as well. It's not just about tech. And I think what we're going to witness over the next couple of years is this kind of deep breath and pause before people continue to just buy tech. And I think that will start to weed out what is the really good tech that's actually effective. Because I don't believe for a second that of the 300,000 mental health apps available on the App Store, that they're all effective and numerous studies that have looked at the effectiveness of most mental health apps as an example that you can get online aren't effective and don't have evidence to prove their efficacy and there are some studies throughout the US that have found less than 14% of mental health apps can actually prove that they have an impact and there's obviously very few in the UK that are approved by the NHS very few in the US that are approved by the federal government so I think that we will start to see some regulation there which will weed out the less effective. So it feels like we've kind of all got really excited, bought loads of stuff, tried to deal with this big growing wellbeing problem, and now we're kind of having to take a bit of a pause and think, hang on, this is not sustainable for the long term.
you've sort of answered my, I just had a question while you were talking and it's kind of been answered, which is once these things are commodified, you mentioned about kind of marketization or commodification of um, these different well-being apps. You're obviously going to get opportunists, bad actors, things with not great efficacy. And, um, and so how do you kind of filter them out? How do you, how do you work out which ones are effective? And I guess your answer is, is take time, wait for regulation. Anything else? So I think there's, um, even without the regulation, there's quite a few places. There's a couple of organizations called Ocra and others who will rate some of these apps themselves and rate them against some benchmarks that have been set by um, um, uh, healthcare professionals. One of the really easy ways is to look at who is involved in the setup of some of these things. So lots of these, um, lots of these benefit benefits and, and, and mental health apps, etc., you, you kind of want to look at, is there a kind of healthcare expert? Is there a psychologist? Is there a psychotherapist? Kind of who are the minds behind it? Are they being built with somebody who has experience or qualifications in that kind of mental health space? You can also ask providers for evidence, right? There's nothing wrong with saying it. Show me how this works. Prove to me how it works. Don't just show me case studies of customers saying we love it. Show me how many people have gone through the pathway on your app and are better for it at the other side. And if they can't prove that, you shouldn't be buying it from them because the best providers in the world would be able to prove. And you, know, you look at some of the organizations I work with, like Headspace, the most scientifically proven well-being app out there, in my opinion, because they've committed so much time to proving that it works. They're like, I just want to tell employers that Headspace for work will help you sleep better. I want to prove it. And so they've done lots of academic studies to show that you know, what, what was somebody like before you started using app and what are they like after they started using the app and quantify that as much as possible. So you don't just have quotes from people who say, I love using the app. You've got people who can actually prove I'm sleeping better for using it or my mental health has declined because I've been using it. And I think that's questions that I ask on behalf of our customers to those providers all the time. And I, and I do get shocked at how many times they don't have an answer for that question. I think any product that you're building and you're making claims that it improves somebody's well-being, you should be able to back that up with some evidence. We're going to take a little left turn for the final question, uh, which is about ESG, environmental, social and governance goals. Feels to me a little bit like, I've mentioned this a couple of times in writing, I don't know if you agree, but it feels a bit like the replacement of corporate social responsibility. With that comes, I guess, a tension of why a business is doing this, you know, is it a box ticking exercise? It should really be a fundamental part of your business strategy, shouldn't it? Now, in 2022, I think. And let's talk about uh, the role of HR. We we covered this in a in a piece around COP26 time from um, Jesse Bello Perez, the previous editor. But what can you what can you add to that in terms of HR and its role in ESG goals? So I think for a long time, social issues have affected employer decisions. I think that's happened for quite a long time. And I think, you know, when we talk about lots of the well-being at work, when we talk about financial well-being, when we talk about mental health, we're starting to see employers basically pick up where the state is failing, most people um, around the world, not just in the UK. So, you know, many of your listeners, if they're from the UK, will be aware of long waiting lists when it comes to the NHS. It's a feature of kind of post-pandemic world, but actually the reality is they were slowly climbing for many years, even before the pandemic. 
and the, the wait for people who need to get mental health support in this country has been pretty bad for a while. So it's estimated about half the people who need help will get it within a 12 month period. And so it's massively underfunded at state level mental health support across the world in almost every country. And so employers are starting to pick up the reins because employers are unfairly maybe shouldering the burden of poor well-being at work because if people are coming to work with mental health issues if they're having to take time off that's obviously negatively impacting the workplace so employers are stepping up because they've a reason to but it's kind of where the state should have really been supporting especially in the uk and europe um and so i think we've seen that for a long time and i think what's starting to happen now is we are seeing this movement towards there is an enhanced route to profit for most organizations by putting that employee at the center, as I mentioned at the start. And there are big organizations like Barclays and PwC and Unilever who have really cottoned onto this and started to make some pretty purposeful pledges that basically say, do you know what? Business can't exist at the expense of the environment. It can't exist at the expense of people's well-being. It can't exist at the expense of the public purse. And so how is business becoming a force for good rather than what Peter Drucker used to say in the 70s, that business exact existed just for profit and that was it. Businesses are now understanding that I, I do a lot more. And if I'm employing 100 people, if I'm employing 1,000 people, I'm responsible for 1,000 people's lives. And so we're broadly seeing this kind of slow burn of employers starting to realize that, you know, they don't just exist for money anymore. There's a kind of a higher purpose for most organizations. And I think the fast emergence of ESG and how companies play a part in reducing emissions and being better on the environment has been a kind of tail end of that. But it's largely been focused on the E. That's been the big ticket item when it comes to ESG. And you've had people like Greta Thunberg and et cetera talking about that. And it's always been about, you know, carbon emissions and the physical environment. The S of ESG is probably the thing that people aren't talking about very much but it's relating heavily to the stuff we've already talked about today. So well-being of the individual, making work a positive force in the lives for people. Um, those social issues are around, you know, how is how is work, you know, not just good for people's lives, how are we making sure that people find work fulfilling and learning more? How are we making sure that people aren't excluded from the workforce, that diversity and inclusion is a priority? And if you look at the United Nations 17 big sustainability goals, Seven of those, I think, directly relate to the S of ESG and seven of those I think employers can influence. Um, and one way we saw this through the pandemic was the way that employers and the public reacted to sick pay. So across the US in particular, but we also saw it in the UK, you had consumers lobbying brands to say, if your employees have to self-isolate because of the coronavirus pandemic, you have to pay them sick pay because that's not just the right thing to do, but that's a public health concern. If these people can't afford to not go out to work and they have to go out to work even when they're ill because they can't afford not to, that is a very dangerous situation for society to be in. Um, and so there's, it's reinvigorated this idea of sick pay. And in the UK, is sick pay from a state level and a basic level adequate enough? And I would argue it absolutely isn't. And so actually, you've started to see that consumers are starting to have an opinion now on actually, no, you've got to pay people a fair wage and you've got to pay them sick pay. And these are just the right things to do. And so I think that's starting to see HR policy and reward and benefits become ESG issues as well. Um, and I think it's become so strong now that the other stakeholders, not just consumers, 
investors and shareholders themselves are now taking a pause and saying, maybe we need to treat people better. And actually by treating people better and putting the employee at the center of the business, are we becoming more successful? And in early 2021, 600 of the largest investors in the US were surveyed and 94% of them said, the way you treat your employees is now going to be a deciding factor before I invest my money in you. Because investors themselves now know that unless you're not going to be a successful business unless you take care of their people. You know, your people are your primary stakeholder. If you don't make sure that they are well looked after and supported, if you don't make sure if you know, make sure that they've got enough money in their pocket that you take away as much of the kind of stress in their lives as possible, that's what will make your business very successful. Um and so it's gone from, as you mentioned at the start, it's kind of evolved away from that idea being pretty kind of liberal and progressive to fairly mainstream. And I think, you know, people like Unilever are a really good example of an organization that's doing that. Salesforce are a really good example of an organization that are doing this kind of stuff. And so you'll start to see that those businesses that do more of that start to become more attractive. And during the great resignation and however long this goes on for, those companies are not struggling to recruit people in the same way that everyone else is. Great stuff, Captain. Thank you so much. Loads of really, really interesting developments on this uh, uh, on these subjects coming up, I think. So thanks a lot for your time. Excellent. Thanks for inviting me on.